the life of the Apostle Paul was intended for evil, was intended to harm, kill, and destroy. But God intended it for good. The life of the Apostle Paul transplanted into the words of Joseph are some of the most true words ever spoken. I mean, we know the story of the Apostle Paul. Most of us in here have taken the book of Acts and have paid attention somewhat. We know that that he harmed and killed Christians. We know that he dragged Christians away to court so that they could be killed. We know that he looked at Stephen in the eye and was willing to watch him die because he believed that what he preached and said was wrong. We know that on the way to capture more Christians, Paul had an interesting experience with Jesus. And we know that he became blind. He would later be healed. He would go away for a while and he would return and he would be preaching this Jesus whom he had been persecuting. Well, we know that um, he would go on to write a good portion of the New Testament. We know that he would do some powerful things. We are in a series called Famous Last Words. And today we're going to be looking at the last words of the Apostle Paul. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts 28. Put a finger there and put your other finger at the end of 2 Timothy. Last, last words are powerful things. My favorite movie, hands down, all time, Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. And there's a... Isaac knows what's up. The Count of Monte Cristo is my favorite movie of all time. It's the story of Edmond Dantes, who is a French commercial salesman, sales, salesman, sailor, and he um, has everything going for him. He's got a beautiful fiance, he's got a loving family, and he recently got a nice promotion. But his friend, Ferdinand Mondego, who's the son of a count, who has everything in life, has, you know, an, our equivalent of millions and millions of dollars, wants what Edmund has. He wants his happiness. And so he cooks up this scheme to frame Edmund for a crime that he didn't commit and has Edmund sent to one of the worst prisons imaginable where he's beaten, where he's tortured, where life is awful. And in the midst of his torture and his torment, one day Edmund in his cell um, notices his floor starts to move around a little bit. And this old bearded man, the guy, he, he plays Dumbledore. It's awesome. Like he, he pops up out of the floor and he, he's like, where, where am I? He thought he had been digging his way out of the prison. He had been digging in the wrong direction. And so he has a conversation with Edmund. Tell, uh, they, they talk about what, what, what's going on. He had also been framed. He thought, or they, it was thought that he knew where this famous treasure of Sparta was. Where this treasure worth billions and billions of dollars today was hidden. And he wouldn't tell where it was. And so these authorities sent him to this terrible prison. And so these, these two men strike up an agreement. That, that Edmund will help him dig out to escape prison. And that he will teach Edmund to read, to write, to be educated, and to sword fight. So one day as they're digging, um, a, a terrible thing happens. There's a cave-in. And the, the rocks fall on the priest in such a way that, that he's going to die. And so Edmund pulls him out of the hole. And they start to have a conversation where we hear the priest's last words. The priest says, there's not much time under, under the floor over there. Uh, there those, under those books, under those loose rocks. Open it, grab it, bring me what you find. When I told them I did not know where the treasure of Sparta was, I lied. You lied, replied Edmund. I'm a priest, not a saint. 
He goes on to explain where the treasure is and how to get there, but he wants Edmund to have the treasure on one condition. When you escape, use it for good, only for good. Edmund replies, no, I will surely use it for my revenge. Here now is your final lesson, says the priest. Do not commit the crime for which you now serve the sentence. God said, vengeance is mine. I don't believe in God, replied Edmund. And the priest, as he died, had only seven words to say. It doesn't matter. He believes in you. Last words are some powerful, powerful things. Today we're going to be in two passages. We're going to be in Acts 28 and 2 Timothy 3 and 4. And we're going to be exploring what Paul was doing at the end of his life in Acts and what he was thinking and processing at the end of his life in 2 Timothy. So starting in verse 17 in Acts 28, we read, Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. I just closed my Bible. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Now Paul here is retelling the end of his story. And he certainly knows that it's the end of his story. We of course know that Paul went to Jerusalem not knowing what would happen to him. And he went knowing that he only needed to proclaim the gospel. And we know that while he was in Jerusalem, he kind of raised a ruckus, made some people mad. And those people wanted him to die. And in Rome, it's one of the cardinal sins is to create a ruckus, to create an issue that causes uh, distress in the city. So Paul appeals to Caesar and decides to take his trial to the highest courts. And I don't think when Paul appealed to Caesar, he knew what he was getting himself into. I don't think Paul knew, I don't think it was a part of Paul's plan to get bit by a snake, to be stranded on an island, and to go through some of the stuff that he did. But Paul's story had power because of it. Our own story has power. I found that some of the most powerful and moving stories are Christians who are persecuted for their faith. I mean, we hear it out of places of persecution all the time. And it's the reason the church is growing there. Because they look an awful lot like our Savior on the cross. Paul's story is no different. He's acknowledging that he's suffering for a reason. And that that reason meets people where they're at. It's the hope of Israel. It is Jesus. We know that Jesus is the hope of Israel. But they didn't. And they probably heard rumblings. They probably heard some idea that just Jesus might be the Messiah. But they had no idea who He truly was. Which is why it continues. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear your view, what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Paul was looking at the entirety of human history and seeing the overarching plan of God. I mean, he reflected on this a lot in his writings. Read Romans. Read Ephesians. 
It was in Paul's nature to look at the big picture and see God moving. And so he opened his old Bible, which of course back then was the Old Testament. And he opens it up and from the Torah, from the law, and from the prophets, he shows that God's plan had always been pointing to Jesus. And he displayed that God's plan had always been working in him, that Jesus had interrupted his life for the better and had made him into a new man. This passage finishes. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made the final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For these people's hearts have become calloused, and they hardly bear hear with their ears, and have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, without, with all boldness, and without hindrance. This is what Paul was doing. He spent the end of his life in prison, in house arrest. And he would be on trial and he have to eventually face the sword and he would be beheaded. But until the end of his life, he told people about Jesus. And he did so without shame and without a doubt that what he was saying was the truth. This is what he was doing. So what was running through his head? I mean, we'll probably never be able to know exactly what Paul was thinking. But we have the next best thing. Most scholars think that the book that Paul last wrote was 2 Timothy and that he wrote it in his time in Rome. And so we're going to go there to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Not many of us have actually faced persecution. No, that internet troll on Facebook who called you a dummy one time for being a Christian is not Nero. But the enemy is clever, isn't he? I think Satan is perfectly content with us being perfectly comfortable. Where we have everything handed to us, where we never have to ask where our next meal is coming from. Where we have all of our needs and most of our wants taken care of, and we forget that we should want and we should need the only thing that can satisfy. And I don't think the answer to solving this problem is as easy as it appears. I don't think it's selling your house for a smaller one. I don't think it's riding a bike to work. I don't think it's starving ourselves, living in the streets, and doing things that seem to portray an insane, world-changing faith. These things are good, and you may be called to some of them. But pride is always wrong. And we are never called to look holy for the sake of looking holy. We are called to be holy. And holiness isn't rooted in accomplishing. It's rooted in affection. If we want to escape our lethargic, comfortable, working for a white picket fence, 2,000 square feet retirement lifestyle, we have to not quit doing things or saying things. We just need to pursue the right person and worship the right person. We need to become enraptured with God. Because the enemy doesn't engineer persecution to make you uncomfortable. The, engineer, the enemy engineers persecution so that you will doubt the one who truly loves you. So love him and love him well. That is the way to radical world-changing faith. And Paul continues, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that those from whom you learn it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul's heart at the end of his life was for his spiritual son. He wanted to see Timothy succeed in ministry because he loved Timothy and because he loved the ministry. Because of who it proclaimed. Paul's insistence that all ministry would be rooted in the Word of God. That was Paul's insistence. Because the people who are rooted in the promises of God and the teachings and Word of God are a people rooted in God. And that was Paul's desire for Timothy, and that's my desire for you. This is a series called Famous Last Words, after all, and why I don't consider myself famous. i got some last words for you. Treasure God's Word. Let it seep down into your bones. Let it form you and let it transform you. Be reading it, ingesting it as much as you can because it is the revelation of the only one who is worthy of your worship. And it will change you and it will change your ministry. I'm not supposed to be here. And I don't mean preaching right now, but it kind of feels like that. No, I mean, it wasn't my plan to be at this college. I'll be honest, I was looking at another college where I could have my master's in five years. Or I could room with my best friend. I was looking at this other college. It had a nice smorgasbord buffet for lunch. And I was pretty interested in that. One time I took a trip with my dad. And in the midst of the pizza-fueled, Mountain Dew-fueled, staying up all night talking about stupidity, weirdness that we experienced, I visited this place. And I found a place where two things happened. Where the Word of God was treasured. And where people loved like Jesus. And I knew that my plan was not for me, but God's plan was for me. And so I came here. I haven't looked back. I love it here. I'm going to be sad to go. We've seen where Paul's actions are. And we've seen where his heart is. He's evangelizing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus until his death. And he's concerned for his son in the faith and in seeing the word of God proclaimed faithfully. So where does this all connect? One last little passage. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Paul had in view the end of his life, and he certainly knew it was going to be the end of his life. He knew that he was going back into the presence of the one he had met on that Damascus road all those years ago. And not only him, but everyone who believes in Christ Jesus. Paul was seeing the big picture here, and knew that God was doing something beyond just him and just his ministry. God is setting the world right. And He's using Paul, and He's using you to set the world right. So where does it all connect? 
Where does Paul's heart for evangelism and his exhortation to Timothy to continue in the midst of persecution, to hold fast to the Word of God, and to endure in ministry, where do these all connect? Often we ask, what is the heart of Paul's theology? And I don't think it's some large theological term. I don't think it's a secret that we have to unlock. Actually, I think it's fairly obvious. I think the heart of Paul's theology is the gospel. And seeing the gospel proclaimed to everyone, everywhere. Because he saw God's plan to save the world through his son. And he realized that God's plan has always worked. God's plan will always work. So we've got to stick to the plan. Paul was someone caught up in God's plan. And we should be too. Service is not a box to be checked off. It's a people to be redeemed. And so in the midst of your youth ministries, in the midst of your volunteering, in the midst of your preaching, in the midst of your missionary service, in the midst of you playing your guitar, you are working to help redeem a people. You are not working for a Christian service credit. So serve and serve well. I don't really know how to end this. And I'm not sure Paul did either. I don't think Paul really thought he was going to die. At least, not for good. I think he realized that his ministry would last into eternity, and that ministry is you. God is using you to accomplish this plan. And that's an idea that I think is easy to brush off because we hear it so often, so let me say it again. God is using you. So stick to the plan. And have faith that your shortcomings and your self-perception are not going to get in the way of God using you because He is too great for that. So I leave you, Ozark, with my last words, echoing the last words of Paul. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, Your plan has always worked. You have, throughout history, been redeeming Your people, and it has culminated in Your Son. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You for His sacrifice on our behalf so that we would not have to face the punishment for our sin. Thank You for Jesus. Your plan has always worked, and Your plan will always work. Jesus will once once again invade this world, and He will be ruling, and we will be His people, and we will live in a sinless world for eternity. We thank You that Your plan has always worked. So help us to stick to the plan. And help us to be a people who are dedicated to the gospel and seeing it preached everywhere. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.